Many thanks to Carlos Franco of the Ramble Rouser podcast and Carlos Talks on Facebook. Follow him on social media for podcasting, voice acting, streaming, and more. The following episode deals with explicit descriptions of violence that can be disturbing or distressing to some listeners. These include descriptions of murder, torture, death, and rape. Please be advised. If you want to skip these parts of the podcast, timestamps with specific trigger warnings can be found on our website or on the description section of wherever you're listening to this episode. On a dark day in 2010, the Philippines made headlines all over the world, accompanied by drone shots of bodies, half buried in a pit. Welcome to Yugto, a podcast where we get mad about Filipino history. My name is Sunny, and today we discuss the day that will forever live in infamy. The day that we call the Maguindanao Massacre, perpetrated by the Ampatuan clan. This is a difficult story to tackle. There is horror upon horror in it, only expounded by the fact that the story extends far before and far after the day all those bodies were discovered. We cannot make sense of the violence that happened that day, but we can be enraged at the men who made it happen and the entitlement they had towards a small election happening in the south of the Philippines. It is 2010. The president is Gloria Macapagal Arroyo, also known as GMA. Deaths for journalists in the country are at an all-time high. And Esmael Mangudadatu has a problem. Mangudadatu is a vice mayor of Butuan, a town in the small province of Magindanao in the Muslim southern part of the Philippines. In a strife-ridden country, it's a particularly strife-ridden region full of feudalistic views and clan-on-clan violence. This region is under the near-total control of one family, the Ampatuans. Since 2001, the patriarch of the Ampatuans has been governor, and his family members hold every single government position in the province. Their position is so entrenched, their reputation for violent retaliation so famous, their friendships with powerful people in Manila so well-known, that no one has even endeavored to run against them. Mangodidatu's clan is not as powerful as the Ampatuans, but it is nevertheless prominent. In the coming elections for governorship, he very well might have the clout to be able to wrest one position of control from the Ampatuans. But Mangodidatu can't become the next head of the province, can't even challenge the head of the province, if he does not live to file his candidacy and the Ampatuan clan have made it abundantly clear that they have no qualms making sure Mangudadatu disappears. The death threats become more frequent and less subtle with each passing day. After discussing with his team and his family, they decide that there is only one recourse. Mangudadatu's candidacy has to be filed by people other than Mangudadatu. For Mangudadatu himself to take the roads, it's fairly obvious he will not live to reach the polling place. In his stead, 
they will send people considered to be off-limits in as far as these political conflicts go in the South. Women and the elderly Members of the media as well are generally given a pass, in the same way as other tumultuous parts of the world. On the day, Bango Dadatu surveys the convoy. The journalist's number 32, coming from different agencies and publications from the local media. The women include no less than Mangu Dadatu's two sisters and his own wife, Janalin. With two lawyers and some of his other supporters, these 43 people will go and make sure that his name will appear on the ballot come election day. They are nervous, as is he. But they must know, this is the only way for change to be possible. He bids his family and friends go safely as they pile into the several vans. They turn onto the road and disappear down it. Mangodadatu and the rest of his team left with him watch as the taillights disappear into the bright morning. It is the last time that they will see any of these people alive. It is not too long later that Mangodadatu receives a call from his wife, Janalin. Her tone is hurried, panicked. She says that the group has been waylaid. She paints the picture quickly. The convoy of vans was made to stop by a large group of men blocking the road. She says there might be a hundred of them. She recognizes them as Ampatuan's men. And they have guns. There is no time to ask questions or give instructions. The call cuts off abruptly. Nangu Dadatu goes cold. The fear flares up in him, overwhelming. He knows how this goes. They're going to be made to come out of the car. They're going to be held at gunpoint. He prays that he'll receive another phone call. With demands, with blackmail, with ransom. Can you imagine the desperation that someone must feel that to receive a phone call of someone dear to him weeping and hurt would still be a mercy to the alternative? But the alternative is all he gets. Silence. Minutes pass. Ours. Still silence. Not a word. Not from Jenilin. Not from his sisters. Not from the journalists or the lawyers or his supporters. He and his team are ringing phones nonstop, trying to reach a single member of the convoy. No one picks up. Silence and the sun is beginning to set. The media has been alerted. Several of these outlets are missing reporters of their own after all. Their attempts to call their own have also gone unanswered. And of course they would get the word out. News begins to go around, nationally, of a missing convoy of Mangodidatu supporters. They give the details of the numbers of those missing. They start speculating. The media from across the different islands all the way to Manila begin to pick up on the story. And everyone, everyone, knows who is responsible, though the name of the family is not said out loud. There will be finger-pointing later. For now, it's trying to find out where Mangudadatu's supporters and family have been taken, and what has been done to them. One journalist stays up with the others. His name is Nonoy Espina, 
and he was supposed to be one of the journalists on that convoy. He stayed back last minute because he had felt a cold coming on. But since he got that text that the convoy was missing, he hadn't been able to rest, cold be damned. He stays up, waiting for updates just like everyone. He stays up to hear what might have happened to him had he gotten on those vans. It is hours later that Espina receives a second text. Ten years later, when Espina recounts the story to international news media outlet Al Jazeera, he will say, It seems just like yesterday, days before, word was going around that Mangudadatu's rivals were threatening to chop him to pieces. We were expecting maybe a gunfight. But when that second text came through, Espina recounts, I felt my knees go weak. It reads, Convoy found, all dead. There is a mechanical digger. The huge machine stands, abandoned, next to a haphazardly dug pit. In the pit and around the digger, and the now empty vans, are the bodies. There are so many of them, but all of them are riddled with bullets. Some have some limbs taken apart, evidence of a chainsaw being taken to them to make them easier to get rid of, perhaps. Some of them have marks of genital mutilation, torture inflicted to pass the time as the men waited for orders. Some of the women's corpses show that they had been raped. Janelin Mangudadatu's body is particularly hard to look at. She has been shot 17 times in total. It seems that the men went out of their way to shoot her breasts and her private areas. And there are even a few bodies that did not die for a cause. There are at least two abandoned cars that weren't part of the convoy. Just a group of people who were traveling on the wrong road at the wrong time. There was no room for witnesses. They were made to join the doomed convoy. Like them, they were machine gunned down. Like them, their corpses were sort of chucked into the pit, but only half buried. Because the men somehow did not feel the need to hide the evidence of what they did. There were a total of 58 people forced to stop on the road that day. And there were no survivors. Not a single one. The how is, to this day, so difficult for so many of us to hear. The sheer dehumanization, the brutality. What kind of fear did they feel in that moment? What kind of sadism must have run in the blood of the rapists and murderous policemen and army men who turned this sick nightmare into a reality? And yet the Philippines is a nation of massacres. The Sagod Massacre, which we've discussed in an earlier season, when an entire community was raised to appease a crony of the dictator Ferdinand Marcos, only happened a few decades before. And it was only one of numerous massacres during martial law. The Japanese bombed the city of Manila to the point of its being the second most devastated city in the world during World War II. Prior to that, the Americans raised many of our communities in the name of their manifest destiny. Senseless and wide-scale violence is endless in the Philippines' history. 
how our countrymen die like this over and over is something we will never fully understand. And so we cast our minds from how to why. Following the country's long legacy of violence, Ampatuan had the guns, he had the gold, and he had the goons. He was inflicting Marcos-level terror on this region. But why did the Ampatuan clan believe with all sincerity that they had the right to do this? The only ones who would understand are the similar families who hold power in the Philippines, who have always held power and who will do anything to keep power, warlords by any other name. Then there is another why. Why did Anpatuan believe that, just with a digger and some cash in hand, he'd be able to get away with this? Why did the men who were receiving the instructions from the family over the phone believe themselves so protected that they couldn't even bury the bodies right? It's simple, really. This much violence over an election in a small place in the south of Mindanao was precluded by election scheming that dated back to the last contest for the presidency. While we cannot understand why the Ampatuans feel justified to do anything for the sake of keeping power, Ampatuans cemented alliances with people who did, namely GMA. Yes, President GMA. It is 2004. GMA is running for president against Fernando Poe Jr., or FBJ. Things aren't looking good for her. GMA is the current president and was one of the hero figures of the People Power II revolution, after the former president Arab was deposed. Unfortunately, in the short four years, GMA hasn't exactly endeared herself to the public. She has name recall, yes, but the goodwill has fast run out, as there have been rampant deaths of journalists left and right, and as her own corruption scandals take the fore. And now she's running against FPJ, a very beloved actor who comes across as bumbling but endearing in real life. The masses love him. They see themselves in him. They believe he genuinely cares about them. They're going to win him this election. What is GMA to do? The exact scale of fraud that GMA does to secure this election is discussed in our previous episode. In real time, it doesn't come out until a year after she's won it. For now, though, she curries favors with everyone she can. She calls old friends, and she makes new, unsavory ones. In the region of Maguindanao, six years before a massacre puts the region under a global microscope, the Ampatuan warlords are receptive to GMA and her team's offer of an alliance. This family rose to power in 2001, just around the time GMA took the presidency. They achieve this through violence and threats, so they don't need a financial backer. What they need is a protector. There are phone calls and bank transfers and promises made and promises kept. And when the dust settles on the 2004 presidential elections, it comes out that in three towns of Magindanao, not a single vote went to FPJ. 100% of the votes went to GMA. It's an impossibility, pure and simple. But through their sheer control, the Ampatuans made the impossible real. 
and GMA would pay the debt for that miracle over and over during her years as president. Over the next few years, Maguindanao sees many billboards go up with the Empatuan's faces plastered all over them. It's to let people remember that they are to thank for any project, big or small, throughout the region. It's also to try to whitewash their known penchant for violence when things don't go their way, something that they are wont to do with increasing impunity as the years go by. After all, who do these years belong to? The same name plastered alongside the Ampatuans on those same billboards, GMAs. They sing constantly of the local oligarch's partnership with the president. And in doing so, they telegraph that the Ampatuans have friends in the highest offices of the nation, who will bail them out of any skirmish and shield them from facing accountability. Just to drive this point home, in 2006, GMA herself makes the decision to allow the Ampatuans to set up armed militias in the region. They say it's to give the local police and local military support in fighting against criminals in the area, something heard repeatedly in martial law when cronies needed military forces to silence anti-Marcos factions. GMA agreed. After all, Maguindanao, like much of the southern Philippines, is historically full of fighting. And so by presidential decree, the Empatuans further tightened their already iron grip of the region with a new brand spanking private army. And boy, does that armed militia come in handy when an upstart from an opposing clan called Mangudadatu says he will run against them. The Ampatuans bristle. But of course, they're going to fight tooth and nail and chainsaw and machine gun to keep what is theirs. It is 2010 again. A convoy of cars pull over to the Elections Commission in the heart of Maguindanao. In a better world, a number of women and journalists would have taken this short trip stepped out of their vans, filed a candidacy, and when the work was done, gone home to their families. But in this world, it is soldiers, a police commander, a senior army general, and Esmael Mangudadatu himself. Only death can stop me from running, he says, as he hands in his candidacy papers. This candidacy will not bring his wife or his sisters or all those who died in fear and clawing for a respite back. But it is something to do, a way to keep occupied, from the rage and helplessness he will undoubtedly feel for the rest of his life. It is a way to make their sacrifice worth it. The sheer rage the nation felt after the Maguindanao massacre manifested in massive rallies throughout the streets. This was echoed in condemnations across the globe from world leaders and international publications. This reverberated as Mangudadatu won the governorship, rightly and easily. And it burned long, long after the Ampatuans were arrested, three days after the massacre. And yet, it would take ten long years for these 58 victims to receive any sort of justice. Unsurprisingly, this verdict came long, long after the Ampatuans' best friend, GMA, stopped being president in 2010. In 2012, witness Esmael Enog was killed. In 2014, witness Denik Sakal was killed, ambushed while on the way to see lawyers. Fellow witness, Bich Saudagal, 
was wounded. Nena Santos, a lawyer from Mangudadatu, was offered 300 million pesos by the Ampatuans to throw the case. Relatives of the 58 victims reported receiving either bribes or threats non-stop over the past decade. And all the while, the members of the Ampatuan clan all claimed not guilty. They all claimed they were being framed. Even 10 years after the massacre, when the members of the clan who spearheaded the massacre and the numerous men from the police and their private army were proclaimed guilty and shunted off for the crimes they committed that day, the Ampatuans denied all charges. To this day, 80 other police suspects remain at large, including complicit police officers and Ampatuan clan members. The family continues to casually file for bail for those of them incarcerated, and they continue to run for office in the Maguindanao region, for those of them able to stay blame-free. The Empatuan's sheer inhumanity did not begin at the Maguindanao massacre, and it did not stop there. It has not stopped since. The anger of the people, their lives, their peace, mean nothing to this family. All that matters is power. This is the attitude bred into our so-called leaders by years of allying with those of like wealth and like ambition to shield each other to obfuscate for each other, to hoard power for each other, all at the expense of the hundreds upon hundreds who have to be defrauded, disenfranchised, molested, and murdered to keep the status quo unchallenged. This is the attitude that has poisoned our country, that has turned these elections, our democracy, into at best a farce, and at worst, a killing field. And this is the attitude that propels GMA and the Marcoses and the Estradas, and the Dutertes, and the Ampatuans to make shameless alliances of flagrant corruption and impunity, even now. And to smile for the cameras the whole while as they do it. The Maguindanao Massacre was the single most violent election incident in the history of the Philippines. It was also the single deadliest event for journalists the world over. This is our nation's legacy. And until we have elections where we break cycles instead of perpetuate them, then it will remain our curse. Thanks for listening. Yugdo is narrated, researched, and written by Sunny, and is supported by the Work in Progress team. Sources and any subsequent correction of facts for this episode can be found on our website. For more information about the horrors of martial law, listen to Yugdo Season 1, The Murders of Martial Law. For more on how the Marcos campaign uses the digital space to spread anti-historical propaganda, follow me at sunny underscore bunny underscore tan on TikTok. Support us on Spotify, Anchor, and YouTube, or email us for any questions at whipinc.ph at gmail.com.